North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Dr. Kuntz, it's been a little while since we talked, and I got to listen to your call to defend, which I found to be invigorating, timely. I promoted it on a number of other channels. I recommended it especially to the young men that are forming a men's group at my congregation in order to... Mm -hmm hope that their grandchildren will worship at that altar. But uh, the kind of talk that was is not the kind of talk our circles are used to hearing or giving. <laughs> now, yeah. I, that's, a, that's an, inter an important topic. It's the topic I want to get at. But then my question is going to be really flagrant and inflammatory because that's what I do. All right. So, like... How close are we? <laughs> uh, you mean to um, d defeat an Indian country in terms of the talk? Correct. Or what are we looking at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or, or uh, you could just say, how close are we to yeah. to Black Swan? Would be another way to talk about it. Okay. Uh, and in one way, I guess it's because from where I'm asking the question, you talking like that says we passed it already. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, exactly, which is what I believe, right? So a lot of people have observed that being conservative in any sense of that word, anywhere that that word is used in modern America means retreating constantly and saying you're sorry and you'll end up defending the most radical leftist thing that's being said right now, um, maybe within 20 years, but probably within you know 20 months at the rate that we're going because of social media. So I... I believe that I was born in the second half of the 1980s into, in terms of the call to defend talk, into the retreat from Little Bighorn, meaning we were already losing, we were routed. And if you go back and you look at things that were being said in the 1980s, they were already all framed in terms uh, acceptable within post-1960s political discourse. You were no longer allowed to say lots of things that you, you know, if you were an adult, you easily could have said, I don't just mean to your friends. That's, that's one thing. I mean, like on the floor of Congress in 1958. So I think that we have been in retreat from our little bighorn since before I was born. Can you define and our little bighorn? Our little bighorn is the change in not just the, the tenor or the, the topics of our political discourse. It's where we presume, even if we are conservative people, that because of, quote, technological progress or material changes, our lives will be drastically different from our grandparents. And that is at least neutral. That's the change. And you hear it, even if you go back and you listen to... Uh, a genre that markets itself to conservative Americans, country music, right? It, yeah. it still markets itself that way. I don't, I'm not, I don't think Nashville is conservative. I don't know if it ever was, but you listen to songs from like the 1980s, right? So their grandparents are people that grow up riding horses. So they'll, they'll even in a tribute song, like Randy Travis has a tribute song to like his great grandfather, Confederate railroad, a, a name you couldn't have today, but in the eighties, it was still fine. Confederate railroad has a song. Daddy never was Cadillac kind. And they even recognize in that latter song that giving their kids more stuff is bad for their kids. 
and their dad didn't give them that and that was good for them and he was a good man but they just sort of accept that that's the way things are so i would say the point at which not just that you have communists openly or homosexuals openly or whatever openly but the point at which even your people who are conservative have it inside their minds that they are losers or outdated or that their parents were losers or outdated that predates the 1960s i think the 1960s is simply the time when it comes to dominate american public life can you tie so, this to a particular ideological shift in the century or two centuries before that like in the schools i think that relative to the schools it what you just take the term progressive right so the term progressive education in its original setting in that time progressive simply means a better way of doing something okay so progressive was for instance the idea that we would bring electricity to rural areas okay it had nothing to do specifically or explicitly at all in anyone's mind with the idea that we're going to bring electricity to the rural areas and that will make the rural areas susceptible to kinds of religious and social change that are unthinkable and about which we cannot now be explicit, right? So one thing that you could do is you could say progressive was an ambiguous term, but the notion of progress and a focus on progress as the center of life, the definition of what it means to be alive was always at best ambiguous and, and maybe negative, right? So that's going to date you to the early 20th century. In American terms, I because I don't, and we've talked about this before, I don't believe we're actually living in the same polity that we were prior to World War II, maybe certainly prior to the Civil War. The mm -hmm. terms are yeah, redefined. Right, right. Yeah. Because of that, it's kind of hard to say because at any given time, a lot of things are up for grabs that later on look like they were set in stone from the beginning. So, but I think that the nature of what progress is, is probably the great, the great trouble here. And America has particular trouble with this because unlike Europe, we were not devastated by the world wars. Correct. We yeah. succeeded and prospered during the world wars. So, so you're saying the Quakers are right. <laughs> I'm saying that the Quakers are a lot more like the modern world if you go back and look at them at any time. And that if you look at, you know, opinion polling of Americans on any number of questions, say in 1961, what do you think? You know, just go to like the year before some momentous change. So the year before Bible reading in public schools became illegal, uh, the year before we enter World War II. What do you think about Bible reading in public schools? What do you think about entering the war in Europe? And opinion polls will say, Bible reading is great. Going into war in Europe in 1940 or 1916, nope, that's horrible. Let's mm -hmm. never do that. So the past is a very strange country. And I, I find that that's why it's so useful. Because you also see how far back a lot of problems stem. But for that reason, I think also how holistic solutions have to be. But you didn't talk about the Quakers. <laughs> well, I'm not, honestly, I'm kind of Quakered out. Um, I went to school with them. So I think that's why I, I want like you to talk I, about I it because time. I want people to understand you're not advocating that because that's, <laughs> that's like, I think that's the native response here is like, oh, so the, the shift at least was electricity and whatever that means, we have to rethink it from yeah. that moment. I think it is yeah. what you're saying, but then most people aren't going to be like, rethink it. They're like, oh, who did it different? Quakers. They're right then. And, and, and like you got the either or bipolar thing where you can't imagine a nuance in a different way. Oh, path. okay. Okay. Are you saying, do you mean the Amish? Yes. I'm a fool. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because the Quakers, the Quakers <laughs> are fine down. with technology. Oh, okay. No, the Amish. So yeah. So what I'm advocating in terms of the Amish is not every single decision they've made. Because for example, the Amish are very physically vulnerable, which is part of their theology as Anabaptists, but they're extremely physical, physically vulnerable. So in a case of wartime, and this is kind of key because the Amish strategy has not actually been, been tried in a time of war hmm. um, in right. the sense that they have not been physically threatened on mass right. in a time of war. Right. They've had difficulties with the draft, but that's it. So in the case, the thing that I, I am advocating in terms of the Amish is collective decision-making about things as basic as how you make money 
or what's inside your home or what you allow into your home. And we have left that up to people's discretion mm -hmm. and generally, certainly in Lutheran circles, don't even talk about it collectively, which doesn't make it go away. So for me, it's at least as lively a question if my people know, you know, why is Roman Catholicism wrong? Okay, that's good. But really, before they know that, because that's probably not a threat to their six-year-old, why should you not put your six-year-old on a screen when he's bored or you're bored or you're both bored? Right. So collective thinking about private life yep. is something we need to get back. And the Amish, I say it right this time, yes. Why do I confuse Amish and Quakers? That's its own question for me now. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, right? I mean, weird Pencil people from Pennsylvania the weirdos. That's right. That's exactly like myself. It. I'm yeah. like, it's like seventh grade geography. I'm like, that's the where I, how I filed it. And that's so, me too. Yeah, just <laughs> Pennsylvania weirdos category. Just put me in there. So I, I want to. You, you said we're going to get to to uh, the collapse of yeah. everything and how to see it's coming in a moment. Uh, you were talking about this idea of progress. And you, and you tied it to electricity as an initial moment. And I do think historically that's, it wasn't a philosophy. Yeah. It was a new medium. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we, all the digital and all of the mass communication that we have now that's hyperized started still then with this, this new form of medium. And what I think no one could see then, although every Christian had like the tool belt for it. Yeah. And you said we couldn't see what it would. And I, I was waiting for it. it. We couldn't see that it would become a religion. That it would actually take on religious connotation in people's lives. So that to remove yourself from electricity is effectively to have the mark of the beast, right? So that you can't buy or sell trade without this thing. And it's not to say Christians run and flee for the hills. Oh, well, maybe it is to say that. But, but it's, it's not to say go crazy. It's to say recognize how powerful uh, electricity has been as a change agent in the way that humans think, feel, yeah. act, and that that is what kind of life before God is and 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 in that then um that's what we're up against the question how do we collectively think about electricity's effect on modern life as or pri private life excuse me private life as christians in a given time and place and that's what the amish are already doing in one way right and what we want to do now yeah right right because they 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 were many fewer in number a century ago more than a century ago when they rejected cars. You can actually find photos of Amish men driving cars. They realized that this represented an existential threat to the way of life, which is for them connected to farming. And so they began to think collectively. I, I think that it had to get much farther down the pike for groups that were already, you know, not at all different from anyone else in America to realize that the, the existential threat in American life is usually about consumer experiences yeah. and less or at least less explicitly about ideological or religious affirmations, right? So our regime doesn't work until relatively recently with, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine is safe. Now is the time to schedule your shot. They generally haven't behaved that way. And that hasn't been the nature of American life. There is some illusion or presupposition of material or personal freedom that has been preserved. They're not really preserving that illusion anymore so much, but it was preserved. So I think it just, it, it took the rest of us a lot of time to recognize that this could be a threat. And meanwhile, you find generations for many generations now sort of laughing at the concerns of the previous generation and I, I always just dislike that on a sheer emotional level of disgust. Like I, that just seems to me reprehensible to laugh at your ancestors. You're here because they existed. G.K. Chesterton has a great one about, you know, the man who calls his father his fool isn't going to fall far from the tree, something like that. Like it just, okay. it's just, you yeah, know. that's, yeah, I know that's right. But, but also it's like, are, are you actually sure that all of their concerns about something like insurance or or yeah, right. seeing movies or something was it, were those actually were they just crazy no no I, i'm with you on that right. the dismissiveness yeah. of the yeah, way this right. stuff is handled oh we talked about that already when like 70 years ago okay you know what's <laughs> happened since then besides your decision yeah, yeah like anything. bad stuff right so yeah. like, like yeah. maybe we should think it through that's right um but then if you do that 
and you're like an Amish person or a Quaker, yeah. perhaps, living in the mountains somewhere far away, being your own collective people, just minding your own business, but you happen to not get inoculated with gene therapy, and everyone in the world thinks that you have to be, or else you're going to kill them. Yeah. And so they send the American military after you. Right. Well, that's the well, that, opening thing, well, now, then right? The American then military, done. yeah, the American military mythos drives everybody out of everywhere and can beat anyone at any time. It does, except for and, except and, for the Taliban. Except yeah. For and what I want to start out, I want to talk about Afghanistan today, but I want to start out by talking about some of the mythology surrounding the American military first. Absolutely. Um, which is very, very powerful. It's probably very powerful for the demographics of our listeners um, or people they know. You probably know, um, if you listen to this, you probably know plenty of people who have been or are in the American military that wouldn't be true if our listener base were derived from, you know, Ivy League graduates or something. Not at all. But the mythology of the American military surrounds especially its victories in both world wars. And that has to do partly with the time at which we entered, but it also has to do with the fact that because we're not on the Eurasian landmass, we did not personally suffer and especially our industrial infrastructure did not personally suffer Benefited. the effects of war. Yeah. And so this is the case with both world wars is very much the case also with the civil war and the U.S. military, not the, not the CSA military, but the U.S. military, which is when you're not personally suffering hits to your industrial infrastructure, if you are an industrialized nation, you are going to be able to overwhelm other nations that do not have the same capacities, which is exactly what we did. So this does not mean to say that, you know, the, the American military never won a battle fairly or something. I'm saying par a big parts of the reasons that we won when and where we did was because of our industrial and then in military terms, our logistical capacities. Right, right, right. Well, for a, a metaphor here, like you can't be like, well, the reason the fighter won was because he had bigger muscles. So you can't say that he was, that's why it doesn't all count. No, no. Yeah. So they, they right. this is the point. You want big muscles. Right. You need, you need industrial infrastructure right. and you, you need it to protect it against any threat that happens. And this is again, to jump way ahead. You realize everybody, the one thing we lost the last 30 years was industrial infrastructure as a country. Right. Like we have none. Precisely. Okay, so yeah. that's, that's yeah. problematic. Anyway, it, on, on it is, go. it is. And I think we were smart in recognizing at the end of the Second World War, for example, that a big boost to our military capacities would be to recognize how massively inventive the Germans were being, especially in the last three years of the war, and to take that expertise on board, which is what we did both with the space program, but also with our missile programs and both the Army and the Air Force. We brought them on board and we recognized that that was part of our strength, right? Because the Germans were inventing jet, you know, jets, what becomes the assault rifle, lots of really amazing things, extremely inventive because they absolutely had to be because of their lack of logistical capacities. So the mythos of the American military, however, is connected to images such as the one that the Taliban just mocked wearing captured American gear and restaging the raising of the American flag, hmm. but this time with the Taliban flag, restaging the taking of Iwo Jima. Right. And so that, that mythos is not connected to the historical causes of American military victory, which have to do with geography and logistics, I think largely, not entirely, but largely. That mythos is connected to something that purportedly in hears in quote the american people yeah right you're like trojans like you're just you're just yes. better right or you're not yeah. trojans um sparta right. there we go sparta yeah. you're just spartans yeah. right yeah and so like to take an example of how i don't think that that actually works and and who your population is does matter okay the union army to go to what i think is largely a logistical victory in military history terms the Union Army doesn't even speak the same language. You have massive units that only speak German because, especially in the later parts of the war, when the North is running a heavy draft, even actually getting people out of Appalachia, which they did not succeed in doing before 1864, they 
they also are conscripting or offering a lot as incentive to immigrants. So you have people who are largely urbanites. They're coming from cities in Germany, cities in England, cities in Ireland. They don't have a whole lot in common. And you are asking them to fight for the United States of America. Okay. So on the other hand, the South is overwhelmingly rural, which to this day, it's generally recognized in even in Western armies that rural men usually make better infantrymen because they're accustomed to being outside, finding their way, field navigation, shooting guns, lots of stuff like that. So why then does the South not win if they have a population inured to physical hardship and, and actually good at shooting, right? They don't win because they don't have the capacities that you need behind the guys that pull the triggers to win. <laughs> so if, if I, I, can have, I can have an amazing population, I can have a population that's 95% rural guys used to shooting guns, used to being outside, don't need you know lots of stuff to take care of them. It doesn't matter. And the South had mobilization levels way above the North. They still lost. So I think that who is in your military does matter. I completely agree. Can I, can I just throw in there? I yeah. mean, you, you might disagree with the narrows of this, but symbolically, I think it's right. Stonewall Jackson's death was, was the war's changing moment and your personnel are everything. And so when you lose yeah. the personnel that are the, the, the absolute stalwart that everyone else is looking to, if you don't have another yeah. lion step in, then, you know, the, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter, I think the guy with the red letter said. Yeah, and that that has that has something to do with our current day military too. So to bring this into the current day, I think that not only do we have lesser capacities, I mean we just we just gave up control of one of the major sources of rare earths, which is important for almost everything right now in leaving Afghanistan. And I think it's now gonna be maybe a Chinese protectorate that, that seems likeliest. They actually mm -hmm. have a border. It's very small, but mm -hmm. We gave that up. Tennis fun with those. First, we're friends. Then we're good friends. Then you're China. Yeah. It's awesome. So we have that. So we're, I think we are losing industrial capacities. That, that yeah. isn't true all across the board. And it's certainly not true with all military technologies. But it's, it's undeniable that we're losing those capacities in a broad way for the last 40 years. Absolutely. In addition to that, the fighting personnel are, as we've talked about and as I've said before, they are the regime's demons by and large. So right, right. our demons, which are white males, generally conservative people from the South, from, you know, the mountain West, from, you know, farms in the Midwest, our demons are the people who are largely our, our trigger pullers. That doesn't mean they're everybody who dies, but they are largely our trigger pullers and they are way overrepresented in infantry units, in combat units. Okay. So you have to think about the fact that those are the very people who become politically problematic mm -hmm. uh, most and most of all today if that's the case are they going to stay are they going to leave because they don't want to get a vaccine are they going to stick it out in a subterranean way that to me is all up in the air yeah yeah but right it's 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 it is very telling to me that that however they are still used in politically salient ways right so you get you get for instance the image taken i think it was a time life reporter of uh, men charging on to Omaha Beach on D-Day, you know, uh, Antifa storming, you know, fascist positions. Well, okay, that that's a military that in World War II is racially segregated and for which the Ku Klux Klan, can you think of a bigger boogeyman? The Ku Klux Klan recruited Southerners to join the military to fight <laughs> totalitarianism. In Europe. So the chances are that all the guys in that photo would be considered virulent racists by mm. today's standards. And in addition, they don't even have to share a mess hall, let alone anything else with a black man. So the problem here is that we're still getting we're still getting both in terms of the past with World War II, but also in terms of the present with our trigger pullers, we're getting a deployment of white males as regime supporters, even where historically that just simply is not the case, just, just simply is not and cannot be. So that's a very, to me, open-ended thing. What will happen to that group of people in the military? 
Yeah. Especially because my my third thing is on your on your Stonewall Jackson comment is right on. Especially because the people in charge of our military are there for their political skill. Yeah. They are they are not there and th- this has this has to some extent always been the case. Um Eisenhower Yeah, right. was was not the warrior that Patton and MacArthur were because when you allow a man to be in combat it will change him and it will change his outlook on what is worthwhile. Yeah. Okay. So what you want most of all is a cooperative bureaucrat. And then in somebody like the current chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, you're getting a cooperative bureaucrat. This is a man who probably never used the adjective white for anything except, you know, his dress shirts prior to 10 years ago. But if he needs to go in front of Congress and talk about his, he's so worried about white rage for political purposes. Of course, he's going to do it. That's Mm. what he's been doing his whole life. So combination of crumbling infrastructure, you have sort of a a warrior or mercenary class for an empire that doesn't like them very much. And then you also have a leadership that was not selected on the basis of competence, but instead on the basis of political conformity. And that this to me, why don't we we give them all like everyone that's in the military has to deal with this. Why don't we give them all gene therapy, increased likelihood of heart attacks right away. And then within a generation, (laughs) we'll have no military whatsoever. So it won't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think that the the mandatory vaccine for the military shows you exactly what any kind of vaccine mandate anywhere for any purpose is about. It's about command and authority. It's it's not about you're going to get booster shots. It's it's not about science or medicine or something. It's, it's about, are you going to go along with this? And I think that in their insanity, they really are trying to sort out politically difficult people or people whose politics could be expressed. Right. So I think this is the, this is the, it's the same thing as the Soviets throwing women into combat in world war ii against the germans partly that was just desperation because of casualty numbers but partly also it was an attempt to prove that the socialist woman could be the equal of the non-socialist or fascist man it was they were making a political point above all things and I, i i remember you know reading about world war ii or reading about vietnam right when we fight openly communist powers and I, and thinking, you know, that's crazy. They had a political commissary. He's just dead weight, you know, and everything like that. You know, why would they do that in all these units? Well, you, you do it because the regime is interested in something more than military objectives. And so I think that instead of putting a political commissar as such everywhere, again, the way that our regime operates is always in this sort of passive aggressive feminine way they're going to nag you to death until you can't stand it anymore. And you either leave the house or you go along with what she wants. Margaret Thatcher was a very important person in history. <laughs> she, yeah. Margaret Thatcher was emblematic of so much, but yeah. So I think, I think that, you know, that's why you have the vaccine mandate for, I think it's only right now it's only active duty, but it's, it's a question of command and authority, just like it is with right your now employer. It's everywhere and is a test and they're pushing how far they can to see who yeah. will and who won't. And then next year they'll do it again because it's easier to normalize you by gaslighting right. than to force you by the point of a sword. Right. Uh, and they need to talk about the stories about the point of the sword so you get scared and don't do anything, and then like 5% more people do something this time, right? That, and this, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chinese water torture. Okay. You said we were going to talk about Afghanistan. And, and we need to because I think that Afghanistan is not so much important for you know vindicating ron paul although i'm glad that that happened <laughs> thank you for bringing that up i'm with you <laughs> okay um I, love ron paul that, the only time i ever like put flyers anywhere was that and that that <laughs> reason gold standard yeah. is important too but it was actually his like don't get involved don't get involved yeah. don't get involved yeah <sighs> yeah yeah so he was so ron paul like alex jones is all, always ends up right so but uh i think afghanistan is important as a litmus test for our empire, such as it ever was. And this is not, I think, baked into America, but it is baked into the way that our regime constitutes itself as world police since the First World War. Baked into America is not, for example, the thing that we were focused on roughly 10 years ago when a guy named David Petraeus, if anyone remembers him now, 
Yeah. Um, David Petraeus kind of rocketed to prominence within the military, along with a guy named Stanley McChrystal, who got removed for different reasons, as coming up with a theory of counterinsurgency that would enable us to figure out how to achieve the always admittedly kind of new world order objectives that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's, it really is interesting to me that Iraq is basically forgotten in the discussion of Afghanistan recently because, you know, the media and then people the dominated by the media. The battle was seriously a thing. Yeah, it was. I, I, what, I, what I mean is that the media will refocus you on the emotion of bad things happening in Afghanistan, Christians being abandoned, whatever, they will focus on that so that you don't learn anything from it, which is Correct. their modus they operandi. Will, they will get you busy wasting feelings about right. things you can do nothing about, so you're too tired to do the things you can do something about. I'm not kidding. It's the whole game. Write that down, yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think, I think that, you know, America is actually is actually a country whose military did effectively deal with a counterinsurgency, which are collectively called the Indian Wars. Hmm. And nobody really knows anything about them. And we try to pursue a different strategy for pacifying um, a hostile population that would not integrate uh, with us and that we did not want to integrate with in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it didn't. It didn't work. OK, lots of reasons it didn't work. If you're listening to this, you probably know how ethnically and also religiously diverse Afghanistan is, and it's a graveyard of empires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The point is not Afghanistan itself. We could have and would have, I think, failed anywhere because I do not think that we ever had the will Amen. to even be the empire that the left thought we were trying to be. I don't you know if anyone remembers. Yeah. Uh, we're just in Iraq for the oil. You yeah. Know? yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember, you know, pre Occupy Wall Street leftists, they were sometimes had something to say. Noam Chomsky wasn't defending vaccine mandates then. So, so what was going on there was we weren't in Iraq for the oil. We sincerely were there and we were sending sort of man jawed Georgetown Foreign School of Foreign Service female graduates into places like Kurdistan to convince the Kurds to, you know, I don't know, embrace women's rights or something. And some of them were willing to go along with it. There, there was a class predating our position in Afghanistan that like the people whom the Iranians threw out in 1979, there was a class of people that went along with the Soviets too, <laughs> right? There, there are going to be people in any one of these countries because they also have electricity and media who want to live the kind of life that the American shopping mall can offer them. Of course there is. I think our major error on an ideological level was the idea that that is actually satisfying to most people anywhere. And that therefore, for the sake of, you know, your, your son might become a transsexual, but you're going to have a much higher per capita GDP Taliban why don't you give up your religion? Well, you know, they're not going to do it because one thing that actually is resilient in the face of, you know, shopping mall world is religious conviction. So, you know, and they're willing to wait to take power. They waited 20 years. They now have power. It hasn't even quite exactly been 20 years and they got their country back. To me, this shows that Afghanistan is really, I think, I, and, and I hope, because of my thoughts about the regime, which are clear enough, I hope this is the graveyard of our regime, ultimately, that people can look back and say, this is where many, many, many people who were simultaneously being told that their kid has to wear a mask in school because whatever, and they have to get vaccinated so they can keep having a job. This is where these people realized that the, that the game was up. I'm not optimistic that that's like a majority of American people, but societies and regimes don't, don't come and go because a majority of people believe anything necessarily or have, or have realized something. You generally just need a strong minority or a forceful minority for change to happen. To metaphorize this all again with gaming, I completely agree with you that this, this looks like to, to me, who am I? Whatever. 
this looks like the moment where you're playing Risk. And you are new to this game. You know, you got your little pieces and your dice, and all you do is try to take over the world, little country at a time. You got to fight everybody. And you see an opportunity, and you're like, well, I can take take a lot of space here. I can really make a difference. And you extend your game pieces way out. And everyone who plays Risk the first time, they're like, oh, this is how I play? Okay, this is how I play? I'll just go this way. I'll just extend this way. Oh, look at this place I got. And next thing you know, you lose one battle with one troop way out on your border, and it rolls all the way back, and you didn't, you're out. They killed you because yeah. the way it goes is you need to know when to stop overextending. The game teaches you don't overextend. We have overextended so far. Ron Paul, you bought him up. We have overextended so far. <laughs> Gold standard. We are so overextended on so many levels. And now we're going to just do gene therapy for fun. There is yeah. no category for human experience. I can put this in besides apocalyptic, which I happen to believe we're in anyway. So it doesn't matter to me. But I do think it's important to, to, to put that level of game over man on the strategists as you watch this regime. Now, just because the regime is going to collapse all the way back and how long does it take, it's what happens in the meantime when you're in this country in between the overextended army and like the, the capital yeah. as the defense powers change arms and you're right. the farmer or the civil, civilian just sitting there, right? You're not on the game yeah. board. Right. And that's where and we I- are. Yeah, right? we are. And I think that one of the things that I dislike most on the on the right is some set of narratives about what they're going to do to you and what they have coming down the pike. And this is what Bill Gates is doing. Look, we did a whole episode on the Great Reset. I'm not, I'm not saying they don't want to do horrible things to you and to your children. I'm saying they are massively incompetent. And if you just start acting or try to, like you are competent or try to gain competence, you're going to do a whole lot more for yourself and the people you love than worrying about what they want to do. There's a, there's a sense in which you have to realize what they're doing, but you don't have to believe that it matters. Like it's determinative for the rest of your life or something. That's right. I'm sure they want to do horrible things. They wanted to destroy the Taliban. They couldn't. Not just that they would not. They couldn't. They wanted to. They wanted control. They had, you can find plenty of pictures of American soldiers guarding poppy fields so that the opium can be sent through China as fentanyl to kill people in Iowa. Okay. They wanted to, and they did do horrible things. That doesn't mean they're capable of everything they want to do and acting like they are, or filling your own, you know, telegram feed, you know, pick your kind of alternative social media platform of choice, filling that with depressing, dispiriting things is doing the opposite of what you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I love this guy in Melbourne, Australia, or where it might've been Sydney, riding his horse in the middle of an anti-lockdown protest. And that's something? Oh my. I love that they man. They can't arrest us all. Yes. What what a spirit on that guy. Okay? <laughs> I I want to send him I'm not going to send him Australian money because it's fake. I'll send him actual American currency, which is still somewhat real, you know. Momentarily. Um, Momentarily. I love that guy. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Send him I'll send him Bitcoin, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. What a guy, right? He's not on social media at that point telling himself how depressing it all is and how they're trying to put trannies in all the libraries. I know they are. You know they are. But if you act like that's determinative, hmm. you will end up as a slave. Obviously. To the Obviously. screen, to the screen telling you it's determinative. Yeah, right. Which is where what you what I've been doing more, what I advocate you do is not never hear a story from far away, but test every story from far away with what's going on in your block. See how close the reality is. Spend more time on your block, and then you'll realize those stories from far away are far away, and maybe you'll see how far away they are. So that something like Afghanistan doesn't have to move you as much as something like the HR bill coming down your state's pipeline that you really do want to know about and be active about this week. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, Afghanistan has always moved me. Iraq has always moved me. And, but don't get me wrong reason, on that. But yeah, the, the, the reason the reason for that is because I remember during the first Gulf War, which 
was a logistical, like amazing performance, command performance by the American military. Norman Norman. I remember worrying about whether my dad was going to have to get deployed to the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. So I never thought about the military as just in terms of like, you know, movies. Hmm. And that does make a big difference mm -hmm. if you let your life experiences be the things on which you meditate, There you go. which is where I think Proverbs wants you to focus attention. What did I actually see? Mm -hmm. What did I actually hear? Was it true? Was it false? That that becomes more determinative for how you think about things. How, how have I observed human beings operate versus what am I being told? Because I am aware of people that, you know, were at the Capitol on January 6th, I think about that differently than if I just decided to parrot what I have heard about it. Because I know people that were deployed to these places, I think about it differently. Yeah, absolutely. And if I just think, oh, this is about, you know, absolutely. bringing whatever And the people locally rights. that I've, I've run into who are having the most trouble with it are people who were over there. Yep. Yeah. Well, what exactly. I'm saying then as as a whole we have to learn to divest ourselves from over their stories, no matter what. Otherwise we lose the near ones. And, and literally while we are watching Afghanistan and crying for good reasons, they're slipping other things under the carpet next door. Right. And this is the, the gaslight effect again, that you're missing what's really going on. Not you, Adam, but like that we are missing what's really going on. Right. Uh, as they focus our stories on nostalgic, powerful, important things that Christians and good people want to care about. That's not an accident. I think that's kind of your point. Now, yeah. On because, that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead jump in. Because I, I don't think that this is a lesson about the combat capacities of, you know, Dave, who grew up outside Chattanooga and went in the military because he was he was a patriotic boy you know this is not about the moral or military fitness of the people we send into combat those are those are my people and i and i love them because they're my people not they don't have to be the best all the time but i love them because they're my people this is about our regime's obvious incompetence uh. and, and lying uh. and disinterest in the welfare of American people, or even providing a reason why Americans had to die there. Okay, they don't. They, they don't. They don't even care. Nope. And that indifference is something that I will now, because of that, if I haven't already, begin to reflect in my own life towards them and their priorities. Because they care so little about us that they would have the troops guard poppy fields that will end up killing us because of the lack of drug regulation and the evil of our medical industrial complex. <laughs> if they care so little about us, why would I care about them? Yeah. Why would I care about what they think? Why would I care about what they do? That's really good. It's really good. I got another, there's a little left turn going back yeah. a ways, but yeah. I, 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 I've thought this through several times. So I, I think I want to say it. And that's this, the Taliban teaches a different lesson too. Um, it, you know, a, a, an insurgency can resist a overwhelming foreign power if they are religious convicted and the overwhelming for, foreign power, especially is overstretching, right? So mm -hmm. we, we know that. Okay. Yeah. But it, so the, the common thing for us to say right now, the modern person says something like, well, we, we couldn't have beat the Taliban. Like we can't, you couldn't have done it. Yeah. Not, not the way we yeah. did it. Certainly. Yeah. And, and my answer is that's exactly right because they're not modern. <laughs> and, and here's, here's the yeah. thing then to beat the Taliban. Here's what you have to do. Kill them all women, children, all why that's how Assyria did it, man. That's how they kept them down back then. You know what changed all that Christianity Christianity decided that we didn't want to just, just kill everybody, women and children. We, that's why right now when you're like, that's gross. You know why you feel that way? Christianity. The, the, the nations that did it before Christianity took people, killed them, enslaved them, moved them. Period. We don't like the Trail of Tears in America. Why? Christianity. So <laughs> there's an exposure here of the barbarianism you've been talking about, Adam. And I want us to all see this, that... <laughs> It's not about what I think our military has to do. I think it's what we need to be prepared for other militaries to begin doing. Barbarianism is going to begin harming whoever it takes to win wherever it is. And it's less likely to be some great army from far away as, in fact, yeah. a gang in your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that the danger to the listener is is largely from the Chinese. I think that the danger to the listener is largely from someone who is in it for his pension 
Oh, and for therefore, sure. And like therefore willing to do willing to do things to other Americans. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't sit here and we're not talking about Germany, if, you know, in a little bit, we're not talking about Germany after the first world war, because I'm, you know, worried about foreign powers. We're talking about Germany after the first world war, because I'm worried about our own people and our own regime and the people who live in service to it, because we didn't have to leave Afghanistan for lack of will. I mean, there are, there are counterinsurgencies in modern times that are successfully prosecuted by Western powers. We're not one of them because, I mean, I, I don't think we would have had to, you know, kill all the women and children. I think that we would have had to destroy the fighting age males. And that is, yeah. yeah. The, the old world response is yes, fine. And then in 20 years, they got to do it again. Because you, know, you just make it, you make greater enemies out of their sons. I, I'm not saying I agree with this. Right? I'm the Christian who's mm -hmm. like, I liked the British Empire. I liked the way modern war was gentlemanly in this. I'm yeah. just saying, I, expect it to get like this now. This is a yeah. turning point. Well, and I, I think I think that we could not have defeated. I, I I think that the great difficulty here is going up against an enemy, and I think in internal conflict in the United States or Australia or Canada or whatever. The side will lose that not only lacks logistical capacity, the side will certainly lose that even if it has logistical capacity, does not understand people possessing honor, hmm. right? The honor of their God, the honor of their family, because when you possess a sense of honor, you will resist. It's why I hate masks. Because I respect my own and I respect my God, right? I do not want to be someone's slave, right? If you are willing to give up your sense of honor, then you are malleable and you will be suggestible and they can command you to do whatever they want you to do. Yeah, when you got and no pride, you believe right. anyone who flatters you. And so if a guy named Hitler comes along and tells you the Germans are the great race, you might believe it, especially after a similar collapse of energy and authority, not a firepower in Germany, post-World War One. <laughs> Take it from there, Adam. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes wonder, do the listeners know when the transition is is my words or, or your words? Uh, the goal is we, we should do a poll on the Discord. Yeah, yeah. I'm here for the <laughs> color commentary. We all know that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I mean... Germany, I, I want to run as a parallel this week and next because Germany is the most mobilized society in World War I. So if you take a percentage of men that could have been fighting, um, Germany had the highest percentage, estimated at 81%. So the demobilization is absolutely enormous. And remember that when they're demobilized as of beginning, you know, November 11th, 1918, the Germans actually won one of the theaters. They won on the Eastern Front. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now they did that strategically by starting a revolution. Okay. But they did win. They won. And so they had refocused all of their attention on the Western Front. That is such an amazing story. Okay. So, so mm -hmm. the poison yeah. pill of Lenin himself. Right. That the Germans, they beat Russia by sending one man back from That's exile. Right. That's and right. And he pokes that collapsing regime yeah. who couldn't see its people and was overextended. Sounds familiar, right? He pokes yeah. it with an idea. That's right. That collapses. That is too, is too, is too close to home. Just pass that. Go on. Right. Yeah. Well, and so, so the Germans did not, and certainly the enormous percentage of the male population that was in uniform did not expect to lose the first world war. No, they started they had, in a sense, big they, hammer coming down into France, right? They, yeah. Well, and so they were, they were strategically successful early on. And then in 1918, you even, you have Americans fighting in large numbers casualties, lots of casualties um, in the spring offensives. And the Germans actually believe that they're going to win the war, even with the Americans in it, right? So this is, this is something where their demobilization in, you know, the late autumn of 1918 is not something that they necessarily anticipate. And part of the reason that I'm starting there with a demobilization is because it concerns what I think are largely myths, not in any good sense of that word, 
about what happened in Germany after that, and therefore why Hitler came to power, and therefore why and how we won World War II, which are part of what conscripts our imaginations into the service of our regime. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with that. Uh, let me just throw yeah. as a as a prelude. If you want, you know, the, the juice of everything that led up to that Dan Carlin Hardcore History Blueprint for Armageddon, five part episode, four hours per all World War One. It's really yeah. going to be a master class for you, even though you're going to disagree from time to time uh, on how you got to exactly what Dr. Kuntz is about to talk about here. Yeah. He, uh, the the efforts of Germany, the where Germany was before World War One, who they were thinking they were going to be as a country, um, and right. then g- combine that with the other big takeaway I had from that was just the human casualty uh, overload that nobody nobody saw coming. Um, so by the end of this, you're not only demobilizing your 81% mobilized males, but you have lost hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people in just a couple of years because yep. you just threw them at machine guns at, in, in mass. And like everyone after this is like, we're never doing that again because I was dumb. But like they did it for like three years, right? And so that is a profound place to be now as a nation, losing your young men. Um, the few that you have no longer can do what they're supposed to do, right? All because of, well, you're going you're gonna to tell us the real history here. Yeah, so the the word that gets used for in German for what happens when demobilization occurs, when the surrender occurs, is Dolkstoss, which is stab in the back as one word. And it's an enormous debate, and it's it's definitely off limits in current German politics to say that to say that they could have militarily won because in order to say that you then have to explain why and how they lost. Hmm. And the Dolkstoss is variously attributed in German politics between the wars, between the world wars to different groups. So it's not only the national socialists who had an idea about who stabbed Germany in the back. There are lots of other groups that have other targets. Okay. And the, the question is a legitimate question if you think that critiquing entire regimes is legitimate. The reason that it's off limits, certainly in modern German political discussion, is not only because of the Nazis. It's also because of the investment in a certain mythology about what happened, which I'm going to narrate in a second, a certain mythology about what happened that ends up justifying the existence of the materialistic world order everywhere after the second world war. If I give you a different narrative, then you may think, okay, well, maybe this isn't exactly what I thought it was. Can can I ask, so are are you saying in a sense that like, because everything we do today is to make sure no more Nazis ever, since we maybe have a misunderstanding of what Nazis were, where they came from, even though they're really bad, we don't want anything to do with them. If we learned the real story, we might not trust the people on top so much. Yeah, because I'm willing to bet that the things, and I, I want to do maybe like five, just a five minute narration of certain events that I'm willing to bet 90% of the listeners have never even heard of. I had never heard of them until I was sufficiently fluent in German to read about them because hmm. English speakers don't even know that they occurred. Why so, would we so unless that, someone told us? Yeah, so there are there are just two of these events that I want to yeah, okay. cover. One is something that happens also after the Second World War, and that is the testing of the existence and then the borders around ethnic German populations or areas of German control in what we would now think of as purely Eastern Europe. So in places as widespread as Transylvania, which had a uh, mm-hmm. Saxon German population mm-hmm. from the Middle Ages to what's now Kaliningrad, but was Königsberg when it was the home of Immanuel Kant. There are Germans, there are ethnic Germans with varying degrees of connection to German or German speaking governments in the case of Austria, all over Eastern Europe. And Germany formally as a political entity controls large amounts of that, including in what's now Poland, but also the Baltic areas as of 1918, November 11th, 1918. So the question is, Do those places continue to get to be German or controlled, at least by Germans, 
when the German government is in upheaval because the Kaiser abdicates and goes to Holland and thereafter everything is up for grabs. Who's going to be in charge of the government? Will they be social Democrats? Well, about what year happen? are we at when that's going on? This is all 1918 and the beginning of 1919. Right. And so um, that's being up for grabs will extend into the first couple years of the 1920s. This is largely, if not entirely unknown outside German speaking, you know, areas. It, the, they're, they're kind of called collectively the border wars, but they will determine literally the shape of Poland. They will determine whether Germans get to continue operating as such in the Baltic areas because Germans are one of the target classes for extermination by the Soviet Russian regime. So these wars are going on, low-level skirmishes, you might call them dirty wars, as we talked about in the episode on Argentina. That's one thing. The other reality is something that happens but endures after the Second World War. It happens but does not endure after the First World War. And that is an actually Soviet, not Soviet Russian, but a Soviet regime somewhere in Germany. So Germany is, is now and, and was then a federated polity. They even have separate dynasties that are under imperial sway during the First World War. So when those monarchs also leave their thrones at the end of the First World War, you get most successfully in Bavaria, but not uniquely in Bavaria, a Soviet regime that comes to power in Munich. And define and, that real quick, because for the 80s child in me, I just hear Russia no matter what. And that's not, yeah. that's not really so Soviet, right. So Soviet is specifically about a way of governing, which right. is farmers and laborers councils. But what it really is, is just saying that it's, a, it's the way that communist regimes in Europe operate. And so they, they obviously have backing from Soviet Russia, but they're not Russian. They are right. um, Soviet yeah. Russia, like Nazi Germany. It's a, a political ideology and a, a, language, and a place, group, right. language group. So those, both the border wars will be fought with greater or lesser success, but also fights in the streets, in the towns of Germany will be fought against communist uprisings. Right. So the Soviet regime that's there is just a town? I mean, what is, is this an area? Um, it has effective control over Munich. It doesn't last. It's a matter of months, really. It doesn't last long enough to extend effective control over most of Bavaria, but it huh. tries and is announced as existing. Huh. Right. You have you have communist or communist inspired uprisings also, especially in the northern seaports. Sailors in both Germany and Russia are sort of famously left wing. I don't know all the reasons for that, but that's just the case. Mermaids. So, so th there, there are groups of people dealing with both Soviet uprisings and border wars. Hmm. And those are what are called collectively the Fry Corps, F-R-E-I-K-O-R-P-S. And you can find information in English about them. These are where a lot of demobilized soldiers find themselves. They are people who have significant military experience, have nothing to come back to because Germany is completely economically and thus even on the level of like hunger, devastated by the First World War, just right. as they will be by the Second World War. And so those people have nothing to do and little opportunity for something to do or something to believe in when they come home. So they will form units often known by the name of their organizing officer. So for instance, one of the units that helps put down a sailor's uprising in, um, I think it's Rostock, is the Marine Brigade Erhardt. Erhardt is their leader. There are lots of these groups. So that sounds um, like a nice military tribalism to me there, right there, yeah, for sure. Yeah, mm. I mean, I think tribalism is true for a short term. One thing to note about these groups is that their existence is totally unstable mm. because it has, a, it has an immediate purpose. It has an immediate political purpose. 
because when demobilization happens and when the level of economic devastation and political confusion is high enough, really anything goes. Mm -hmm. And I think that people, when they think about Portland, Oregon today, mm -hmm. or a similar place, need to start thinking about those places, not as, quote, left wing or, quote, blue. They need to think more on a spectrum of, like, organized daily life versus disorganized daily life. Because not only for kind of an average person. Peace versus wartime. Peace versus wartime. Yeah, yeah. And and where where can warlike conditions occur? Yeah. Because I think when people think about collapse, the reason that we're doing this the way that we're doing this, and I'll do Spain, and I'm going to do Russia in the 80s and 90s as well, at least. The reason that we're doing this is because I don't think collapse generally occurs, as I said at the end of the questions and prospects episode, in terms that are always, you know, sort of apocalyptic novel mm. terms, like everything's gone. Yeah, it doesn't all have to be survivalist scenario. Right. It's not it's not all survivalism. So Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah, well, go ahead. I was just gonna point out that martial law and wartime um is very similar to what we're going on with with the COVID shutdowns that the, it is martial law or at least an attempt at it, but via a non-direct declaration, as you pointed out before, they want to take an indirect approach to all of it. Right. But to understand that, that since it is martial law, that means we are at war. Who's the enemy? Well, you got to figure it out. Don't you? They haven't told you, right? The enemy is COVID or something. Uh, so, right. but, but that's peace versus wartime. And that yeah. we're in wartime. We've been living in wartime. That's what you mean by disorganized life. It's just helpful to me today. I've been thinking, what's normal? Normal is when I have an organized life. What does that mean? At this point, it means peace. What does that mean? It means I can go outside and travel tomorrow the way I did today. Yeah. And I just don't know right now. Right. right. I just don't know. And I, I think that it is it, it is notable in, you know, Aguirre terms uh, when we did Argentina. It is notable that country dwellers being isolated were at a severe disadvantage for roving bands. But the absolute most chaotic place to live was always a city. Absolutely. Because they, they are much more subject to immediate and tangible political upheaval and violence in a way that less densely settled, whether suburban or rural places, simply are not. Because most of the battles that the Fry Corps engage in with also, especially as we'll talk about in the next episode, the left-wing formations that are also veterans, 81% mobilized. Not everybody's going to be there in defense of the restoration of the monarchy or something, as mm -hmm. many of the Fry Corps uh, members were. Those battles are city battles. And also because of the nature of that combat, understand that when we're talking about Germany in the 1920s, you're talking about a place where not only have so many people been personally affected by deaths or, or other kinds of casualties in the First World War. You're also talking about a place where blood did run in the streets of major cities hmm. within every single person's living memory. Hmm. And until you think about it in those terms, I don't think that you understand what the nature of the, you know, the Weimar Republic or uh, what followed after it was, because you're not thinking in the drastic terms with which they were familiar, because when the military collapsed or, or had to surrender, that meant that you had hungry young men who had no other purpose than finding a group of other young men to belong to. If that's turned in the direction of making sure that communism doesn't come to Germany also, which is probably why you didn't know about it, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, I never heard about the Bavarian Socialist, Soviet Socialist Republic. Well, you didn't because it wasn't allowed to let exist me, Let for me just very point long. out, that's why you listen. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's also true. Yeah, but I mean, uh, the the idea that you're going you're gonna to let these young men go and give them no reason for being, this is part of why I believe that our regime is so incompetent because they are still not only enlisting, but even but then also demonizing classes of people who won't take the vaccine or are male or are white or are too sympathetic. They're, they're white supremacists like the you know, I can oh, see Hispanic that. guy I in can charge see of the Proud that. Boys. But I, see the, I see the pot frothing and boiling too. And I wonder if they're not trying to make 
homegrown evil that they can point to to turn the guns back inward. That's definitely, yeah, no, that's definitely, I mean, anybody remember the Nation of Islam guy that tried to charge the Capitol, you know, oh, earlier goodness, this year? Yeah. Of course you don't, you know, because that's not, that's not the deal. That's not the narrative. But I think they're going to do that. <laughs> most, most people whom the FBI ends up shooting are involved with the FBI before then. But I, I think it is really incompetent to demonize the class of people that make sure that you continue existing on a military level, because when you let them go and Germany didn't demonize them, but they let them go and you don't give them a rationale for why they did what they did or why their friends died. You are creating a problem for yourself on a sheer political level. In addition to your own dysfunction, your political dysfunction, which is how communists can take power in the first place, but you're creating a problem that you don't, you're not even really anticipating that it will exist as such, let alone what to do about it. I think this is where we're going to take a quick week long break, come back, pick up with more of Weimar Germany, how Hitler came to power, why the story matters because the spin you get from Captain World War One and Captain World War II America isn't necessarily helping us understand how to ignore all the what truth lies sex and fiction being thrown around everywhere so you can actually put your heart mind and soul to the thing that matters most locally for well what matters to you have you thought about it that's the whole point uh so uh, dr coons you want want to throw the end of the episode a a softball some kind here (laughs) it can't be a softball because uh in the next episode i'm gonna give you my thoughts on how and why hitler came to power so that's a hard ball but i think they're gonna enjoy it you're listening to A Brief History of Power with two white guys. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. And you are here again because you heard it, you heard it here. Dr. Koontz will not throw a softball. That was a terrible ending.